17. One writer says that an embassy is an officially sanctioned outpost of one nation inside the borders of another nation. So, for example, the British embassy in Washington, D.C. is in the United States, but if you enter that embassy, you are as good as on British soil. The British embassy in the United States is a little plot of England right here in our country. It is their own sovereign territory. And those who work in the British embassy in the United States work to further their country's interests here. They live in a foreign country far away from their homeland, constantly representing and working for their people and their queen. Now, the church is not unlike the British embassy. Now, we might not have those cool accents, but we represent another just the same. We represent King Jesus. We live here in the United States, in a world far away from our homeland, representing the kingdom of our God to a watching world. This is what every faithful church is called to do. Every faithful church is an outpost of heaven, an embassy of heaven. This is what we are as a people, not this building, not this room. There's nothing sanctified or holy about this room. What makes this room holy is you here in it. And so this is why it's worthwhile for us to ask ourselves, how are we representing our homeland as we live these days far from home? And so over the last four weeks, we've been asking ourselves, how do we want to be known? Or how shall we be known in our community? How shall we be known as we live in this continual tension between here and home? Over the past four weeks, we've said that we want to be known as those who love God most, with a love that eclipses all other loves. We've said that we want to be those that love our neighbors, our unsaved neighbors, as we love ourselves. We've said that we want to represent our homeland by loving also each other with a love that Jesus has loved us with. Last week, we saw that we represent our home by being good. And today, we see, with James' help, that we represent our homeland by doing good. The way we represent the interests of our king far away as we live in this place far from home is by doing good to everyone, but especially, especially to each other. You see, it's too easy in this world to shout loudest and be most passionate about what we are against. Things like, I'm against high taxes. Or I'm against either radical vaxxers or radical anti-vaxxers. Or I'm against this president or the one before. Or I'm against the mainstream media or social media. Or I'm against the direction of this world. Or I'm against public school. Or I'm against this. Or I'm against that. Or I'm against the other thing. It's easy. It takes no effort to be against things. But it takes real courage to explain what you're for. And that's what we've been trying to do. Anyone can be against things. But... What are we for? That's what we've been asking. What are we for? What do we want the people in our community to say, ah, I don't know much about what they believe, but I know what they're for. And today, what we're going to see 
is that we want to say, we want people to look at us and say, you know what, therefore doing good. Therefore doing good to everyone, especially one another. This we will see in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. If I were to summarize, it would be something like this. We must, as a church, each individually and together, do good to all and especially to each other. Do good to all. This is a command from God to each of us individually and all of us together. We must do good to all, but especially to each other. Because faith without good works is not real faith at all. Now I'm going to read these short verses, these, short, these three brief verses, verses 17, 14 through 17, and we're going to see therein a question, a scenario, and a conclusion. So first, I'm going to read in James chapter 2, verse 14. This is the English Standard Version. What good is it, my brothers? Now, that should be translated brothers and sisters. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your help, Lord. We sit here submitted to your word and and heard it, just heard it read, Lord. But we, if we're honest, we need help pushing out the noise of the world. We need help pushing out the cares and concerns of the past week and the coming week. We need help pushing out many different things that we're hearing in our ears right now. I pray that you would help us to do just that by the power of your Spirit. I pray that we would be attentive. I pray that we would lean forward. I pray that we would, by your Spirit, change. Lord, this work is a work only you can do. And no one in this room is more aware of my frailties and vulnerabilities than me. And I pray that you would use even someone like me to present this truth. Jesus, we pray in your name, but we only, and we only have confidence in you and what you've done for us. Help us. Amen. First, a question. This is what we see in verse 14. There are actually two questions, um, but they're kind of asking the same thing. What we see in verse 14 is, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him. Now, if we don't understand what James is asking, we're not going to understand the answer he gives. James is asking, can someone have an authentic faith in Jesus without doing good deeds, without doing good works for other people? That's the question. Now, let's be clear. As Christians, we believe that salvation in Jesus is not by means of works. It's not by means of obedience, but grace Alone, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, is one of the many places in the Bible that presents this clearly. Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, by grace. And this 
is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, and just so everybody's clear, it is not a result of works so that no one may boast. Salvation is not by works, not by the dent of our own obedience, but only and fully by grace. But James isn't asking that question. James is not asking how someone's saved. He's asking instead how the genuinely saved live. He's asking this. Can someone be authentically a child of God, a Christian, if the pattern of their life is to do no good deeds to and for other people? That's the idea. Now, this is a different question than we've been looking at recently. This isn't the same thing as asking, can someone live in unrepentant sin and still regard themselves as okay before God? We've said that no authentic Christian can live in rank, clear, unrepentant sin, living with your boyfriend, living with your girlfriend, living in sexual immorality, living in greed and anger and rage and bitterness and slandering and gossip and, and, and all kinds of things like that without, without any care of what the Lord's standard is. Those people ought not to consider themselves Christian. But this is a different question. Is faith, is our faith that we say we have in Jesus, is that faith, even though it doesn't have good deeds, really an authentic faith? Now, this is a poignant question for any age. Is it enough just to say, I'm good. I prayed a prayer. I raised my hand. I got baptized. I even know a lot about the Bible. Is it enough then to have those things and yet basically live a life self-oriented, self-focused, not thinking about the needs of others? That's the question. Or to use his language, is faith without good works an authentic faith at all? Now to clarify, James then lays out a scenario. So we've heard the question, now we look at the scenario. Verses 15 and 16 presents us with two different people. One is in dire need, and another one comes along that person. And, well, let's see what they do. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed. Now, notice he says here, brother or sister. Now, he's not talking about humanity in general in verse 15. We also see that in verse 14 because he says brothers and sisters there as well. Here, what we see here is his focus is on the household of God. He's speaking specifically to people in the same church, people in the same church community. And so what we have is someone who see, someone who knows someone else well. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the, need, the things for the body... What good is that? Now, don't imagine that James is putting before us these two people who've never seen each other before or strangers. These two people ought to be treating themselves, each other, as family. This imaginary interaction is between two members of the same church. We know this because of the familial language. Never is family, brothers and sisters language, used of people who are not together Christians. Now, throughout the Bible, Christians are always presented as family together. 
Romans 12.10 says, Love one another with a brotherly or sisterly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, does that mean that we should not care about others who don't have enough? No. That's not what this is saying. Does that mean we shouldn't care about Christians who aren't in this building or a part of our church? No. But there are other verses for those things. We, ought, we, we must look here instead at what the focus we have here. The focus here is on showing love and doing good for each other when we are in need. So imagine, so this is the scenario. We run across someone who's in need. What kind of need does this person have? Very basic. They don't have sufficient clothing either to ward off the cold or to protect, like in our context, protect themselves from the heat, and they're hungry. They don't have, it says, daily food. It's not just that they're hungry because they missed lunch or because they missed dinner, but this person has no access, no regular access to food. So we're not talking about needs that we're apt to think about, like a new phone without a cracked screen or a new pair of jeans or a new computer with a faster processor, or a 2021 SUV instead of that old 2015 model, or new patio furniture, or even internet or cable. What we're talking about is some of the most fundamental basic needs for survival, food and clothing. A brother or sister is outside, hungry and shivering. This person is not a stranger. They sit there, barely covered, under the unremitting sun or the biting cold and shake with hunger and someone comes along them, alongside them who should be acting like family. And what do they do? Reach in and give them food? Give them a cloak? No, what do they say? They say this in verse 16. Go in peace. Be warmed and filled. Now, how can someone who is hungry, how can someone who has who has insufficient clothing, really go and pe- in peace? How can they go holistically in peace or be warmed and filled if there is no food to go in that person's stomach? So instead of helping, this person who ought to have moved to help pronounces a blessing upon this hungry person. Go in peace. Now, there's nothing wrong with that blessing. You see it in the Bible. People say, go in peace. And you don't need to come up and say, listen, that is not an appropriate use of that. No, that's not the idea here. This person should have responded instead with empty words. They should have responded with food and help and clothing and shelter. But instead, they give empty religious platitudes. Now put yourself in the place of that naked and hungry person sitting on the street. You find yourself on the street after the worst day or worst week or worst month or worst year of your life catastrophe piled upon catastrophe piled upon catastrophe and you have no idea what you're going to do and you've already missed a bunch of meals and you're wearing rags you don't know how to make it through the day and then all of a sudden a brother or sister from church catches your you you see them walking down the street and you think okay here, here, I can get some help. Here, I can get a meal. Thank you, Lord. And then your face meets their face. There is the spark of recognition. And your brother and sister smiles and says, go in peace. Be warm and filled. 
you would experience neither peace, nor warmth, nor filling. That person ought to be able, that person should have helped, but instead delivered empty religious platitudes. Now, we might not say, go in peace, be warm and filled, especially the warmed part here, but it's very easy to spout religious platitudes. We can say things like, well, God has a plan, or trust God, or God is good, or I don't feel led to do that, or I don't have faith for that, or all things will work together for good, or things like that, instead of just helping. It's easy to use religious-sounding words to paper over or evade sinful inaction. I think we've all done that. I've done it. I think we've all done it. Paul, James asks, if you see someone hungry and you do nothing but deliver empty platitudes, what good is that? One writer says that this is wordy yet worthless faith. So we've seen the question. We've seen the scenario. The question, is a faith without good works really an authentic faith? We've seen a scenario. Come across a church member who's in deep need. We do nothing but sling handy religious platitudes and offer no real help. Now what is the conclusion? That's in verse 17. The conclusion is simple. The conclusion is direct. And the conclusion is devastating. Verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Not sick, not peaked, not your coloring's off, not not feeling well, but dead. Faith without good works is not any faith at all. So how can we tell if our faith in Jesus Christ, which one of the ways we can tell if our faith in Jesus Christ is authentic, not how much theology you know, not whether you've been baptized or how you feel or how many spiritual experiences you've had, not by the position you hold at a church, but how you treat others in your church, especially when they are in need. Authentic faith in Jesus Christ is never invisible. It will always be noticed by the good deeds we do for other people, especially those in our church or the church you're a part of. There is simply no such thing as saving faith in Jesus without an active impulse to do good deeds for other people in need, especially those at your church. So do you see the difference here, what we're talking about when it comes to, when, when, when we're talking about good deeds? Just because our good deeds for others do not contribute to our salvation does not mean that our good deeds are irrelevant. Christians are not saved by their good deeds, but you can recognize Christians by the good deeds they do. That's very different. Very different. Christians are commanded by God to do good. Now, we have, as Christians, experienced a total change. We've experienced a regeneration. We were brought from, as, as, as Zach said earlier, from darkness to light. Not just from darkness to light, but from darkness to the mar marvelous light. We were once dead and we are made alive. And so this great change is a change that must work its way out from every facet of our being. And so if we, if, we, if we say that we are completely different and we've been born again, 
That means that our testimony will, won't be perfect, but will change and grow. And part of the testimony that we will have is that we will move to help other people who are in need when we become aware of their needs. Peter David says, James does not argue for faith instead of works or works instead of faith or even works above faith, but for faith and works, both. We are saved by faith, and those who are saved by faith do good works, especially to those in the household of faith. Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. A faith in Jesus that does not also have good deeds toward others, especially in your own church, is no faith at all. This, this is one of the ways we as a faithful church are to be an outpost of heaven. This is one of the ways we as a faithful church are to represent our king and his interests in this world. We live in a place that is not our home. And so our testimony is a testimony that matters to the watching world. In the early church, one of the leading theologians was a man named Tertullian, and he reported that the Romans were staggered by the love they saw from one Christian to another. Romans, they were pagan. They had no concept. They had no understanding of Christianity. They would spread lies. They would, they would persecute Christians, and there's all kinds of stories you can read in Fox's Book of Martyrs and that kind of thing. But they would say, the Romans would say, that these people, they, they, they give in to incestual relations. And, and the reason was because they called each other brothers and sisters. And other times they said that the Christians were cannibals because they talked about eating the blood or the, the body and blood of Jesus. But as they watched their lives, as the Romans watched their lives, Tertullian reports that they said, see how they, that's the Christians, love one another. See how they love one another. The Christians would care for the sick, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, give shelter. They would lend a hand to any of the household of faith who had need. And that's our command, too, to help the poor, the sick, the lonely, the, doubt, the outcast, the downcast, the jobless. The outside world is never going to say, look at the people at Sinner Church. Look how much faith they have. They won't because they don't even know what that looks like. They don't know what that is. But faith, an authentic faith, is always expressed by doing good deeds. People will, I hope, look at us and say, look at the people of Center Church. They love each other. Look how they serve each other. Look how they give of their time and energy and money and sacrifice for each other. Faith by its very nature is invisible, but good works are very much visible. So how shall we be known? As those who do good. For each other. As those who look to honor Jesus 
And so therefore they sacrifice one to another. As the outside watching world sees our love for each other, as they see us living as an outpost of heaven, an embassy far from home, as we see, as they see us living that way and see our love, they will recognize that that love is a love that is not replicated anywhere else. That love is a love that is that attracts attention. That love is a love that has been put in our hearts by Jesus Christ. And that's a love that we must share here and everywhere, but first here. You know what? There's a lot of pressure in our world these days to try to change the world. That impulse is shockingly absent from the Bible. Normal people like you and me We're not called to change the world. We're not commanded to do that, but we are commanded to help people so that it changes their world one at a time. You might wonder, man, there's so much need out there. How can we make a difference? And that's a great question. We are not in proximity. We're not around everybody. There is is a theme In Scripture, these words aren't used, but there's the idea of a moral proximity. When we are around people that we know who have need, we have a moral responsibility to help them. We have a moral responsibility to move toward them and help them. When we're aware of needs in our church, we're to move toward them and help. Maybe it's car repairs, maybe it's medical bills, maybe it's clothing, maybe it's help around the house. Maybe you're handy and you can, you can fix things that need to be fixed. Maybe you know of a job for someone who needs a job or is underemployed. Maybe it's just bringing hospitality to someone who's, who's discouraged or um, is having a hard time making ends meet. That's the idea. And this is the idea. This, this responsibility is something that we see in verses 14 through 17. It, it, takes, it takes involvement in each other's lives. And this isn't a ministry that a, a leader is responsible for sort of laying out so that, you know, we can, as leaders, we can be aware of all the needs. We're not. In fact, I'm the last one who gets to know of most of the stuff that happens around here. And it encourages me so much when I hear about how you organize and help people who are need, in need that I know nothing about. And I hear, I hear the testimony of people that you help, and they say, man, that is amazing. And I say, yeah, it is. We have responsibility one to another. We also have responsibility in places in the world where we have connections and we, where we know. Like, for example, when the earthquake hit Haiti last month, we have a, we have a, a church there that we support. We contacted them and said, what? would be helpful. We prayed for them. We sent money so that he might be able to provide, the pastor might be able to provide food and clothing for the people who were displaced and didn't have enough to eat. We helped provide food for families for two weeks. Now, family there is not just a nuclear family. It's the whole family, like everybody, grandfathers, great-grandmothers, everybody. So a family is like 20 people. And we provided food for a lot of, like, a ton of people um, for two weeks um, to get them, help them to get back on their feet. That those are the kind of responsibilities we have. That's clear, but we all have a responsibility for each other. We all have a responsibility together. When you become aware of someone who has a genuine need, 
we, we ought to move in ways to help where we can. Not all of us are going to be able to help in the same way, but we should all move to try to help. As Christians and as a church, our call as those who live here in this land far from home, representing our king as an outpost of heaven, it's to move to help, to move to, to, to serve. It's to, to make that genuine faith that we have in Jesus an active principle. Make that genuine faith that's invisible visible as we go to help. That's the idea. So we've said our organizing principle as a church is that we ought to unite ourselves around Jesus. And I have a couple thoughts as we close this series and begin next week a very clear evangelistic series. What are we called to be? How do we want to be known? We want to be known as a people who love God, who love their neighbors, who love each other, who love good and who do good. And all of this is only possible with Jesus as our uniting principle and Jesus as our bond together. Our uniting principle is Jesus Christ and nothing else. We cannot allow any other uniting principle to, to get in and define us. We're not all together because we're of the same race. We're not all together because we're of the same socioeconomic class. We're not all together because we have the same opinions about everything. We are all together because of Jesus Christ. That's why. And we must not forget that. We must make sure that we recognize that he is our testimony. And that might mean that we set aside opinions and we set aside things that might be divisive in this day so that we might not distract from our unity in Christ. One of the legacies that Karl Marx has left all of us, whether you're a Marxist or a communist or not, is this. He said to make everything political. Every conversation, every interaction, every glance at another person, every everything. Make, make it political to bring politics into everything so that that might be the primary way by which people identify themselves. Now, are we going to have political differences here? Yes. Should that divide us? No. What unites us? Jesus. Jesus is our uniting principle. We identify with Jesus and extend love to everyone. And if there's something that we're to be known for, it's not that we're against this politician or for that politician or we're against this kind of philosophy or for that philosophy, but we want to be known as people who love Jesus and serve one another and welcome anyone. That's our testimony. That's what we're called to be. So our uniting principle is Jesus Christ. Also, we can't be afraid there's too many Christians today in the United States who are afraid of the future. Too many. Too many. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid of what tomorrow holds. We know the one who holds tomorrow. We don't need to be afraid. Jesus Christ. Listen, all things are made through him and for him, and he is the purpose of all things. All things are will one day be seen to be brought under his feet. All things one day will be made right because he will make all things right. 
He is holding all things together by the very word of his power. We do not have to be afraid. We do not have to fear. In fact, if we become afraid and try to isolate ourselves from what's happening in the culture, that's a failure. Instead, we can smile at the future knowing what we know. We know who's, who, who's in charge. We know that he's working his plan out. Now, he doesn't ask me what I think about his plan. I'm not his consultant. He didn't clear the pandemic with me. He didn't say, hey, listen, I'm thinking that we have this thing called COVID. It's going to be called COVID-19, but it's going to last forever. He didn't clear that with me. He doesn't clear anything with any of us. But we don't need to be afraid. You see, I don't think these days are for us just to exist and clench our teeth and make it through. I think these cultural moments are times when we can make our faith in Christ visible to people who have no hope and remind ourselves as we show love one to another and serve one another why we're doing this. Because we are living as those who are not home. We live in a place that is not our home, and one day we will be there. And I believe we have an opportunity as a church to be able to get out there and look at the future with faith, recognizing God is working his plan, and there is no government, there is no despot, there is no policy that's going to thwart anything he can do. And so it falls to us to organize and unite around this Jesus and smile at the future and say, man, what are you going to do? Let's see. I can tell you it's not going to be boring. And I can also tell you our job is to be an embassy. We don't represent ourselves. We don't represent our own interests. We represent the interests of our king and our home as we love God, love our neighbors, love each other as we're good people who do good. May the Lord bless our efforts. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Um, all of us will now go out into the culture, go out into the world, Lord, and um, we're going to feel very much alone and isolated and think that, you know, we're all by ourselves. But Lord, I pray that you would just give us the opportunity to be able to show love and care and concern for everyone, regardless of who they are, regardless of their political persuasion, regardless of their sexual identity, regardless of anything about them, Lord, because we know that we were once lost and now we're found. We know that we were once dead and now we're alive. We know that we once groped in darkness and now we've seen your marvelous light. We know, Lord, that you have changed our lives forever and I pray that you would help us to see the day where we can impact other people for your glory, by your grace. So that they might be joined in with us and other faithful churches to do good deeds and make that invisible faith visible. Lord, bless our series, and I pray that you would add people to your kingdom 
as we answer questions about their deepest questions and concerns. I pray that you would strengthen our faith as well so that we might be able to be confident in you and your word. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.